As you probably know, one of the major responsibilities of being a pastor, in addition to preaching and teaching God's Word, is shepherding people. Shepherding people involves, among other things, encouraging them, praying with them, exhorting them, reproving them, guiding them, and counseling them. Through the years, I have regularly had people come to me for counsel regarding a specific question that was plaguing them. They say something like this, Pastor, I'm afraid that I have committed the unpardonable sin. Or, Pastor, I'm afraid that I may have committed the unpardonable sin. Whenever someone comes to me with that concern and fear, I usually feel two opposite responses. On the one hand, I am glad that people are concerned about sin and specifically concerned about committing the unpardonable sin. That's good. That's a healthy kind of fear. On the other hand, I feel sadness for the person who is plagued by this fear and tortured by this fear because there's a sense in which it is an unnecessary fear. If you are afraid that you have committed the unpardonable sin, then you have not committed the unpardonable sin. A person who cares about his heart spiritually has not committed the unpardonable sin. Those who committed the unpardonable sin in the first century in Jesus' day didn't care that they committed the unpardonable sin, and that was part of what made it unpardonable. So it's a good thing that people don't want to commit this sin, or any sin for that matter, but an accurate biblical understanding of this subject is essential. What is the unpardonable sin spoken of in Scripture? It is a common but inaccurate belief that committing suicide is the unpardonable sin. You would not believe how common that view is in society. While it is a terrible thing for someone to take his or her own life, and it is something that should never even be considered, especially for a child of God, the Bible does not teach that is the unpardonable sin. In fact, it is accurate to say that there's a sense in which the unpardonable sin cannot be committed today. Let's turn to our text and you'll see what I mean as we work our way through it. Mark chapter 3 is our text this morning, verses 20 through 30. So turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 3, and please follow along as I read verses 20 through 30. Mark chapter 3, <clears throat> beginning in verse 20. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said... He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. 
So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. And Jesus said this because they said he has an unclean spirit. In the opening verses of this chapter, you, re- you may remember that Jesus was engaged with, in a controversy with the Pharisees over the issue of the proper observance of the Sabbath. Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath the way the Pharisees felt he should have kept the Sabbath. In fact, according to their views and their laws, he broke the Sabbath law by healing a man on the Sabbath day. In response to this accusation, Jesus told them they were wrong. And he did so in such a way that they had no argument to stand upon as a defense. This infuriated them. Verse 6 tells us that the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The Herodians were the Jews of Israel who threw in their lot with Rome. So the Pharisees didn't want anything to do with the Herodians. But the Pharisees were willing to set aside their differences if they could get rid of Jesus, which shows us just how desperate they were to get rid of him. They detested him and despised him. Even though they knew he was right, and his claims could not be refuted. So that's what happened in the early part of this chapter. The Pharisees began plotting to kill Jesus. But they didn't stop there. They knew it might take them a while to get him. They they knew it might take a while to carry out their plot. So verses 22 through 30 tell us that they even went further by committing the unpardonable sin. Namely, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Thus, they said, this was their official declaration, they said, Jesus is satanic. That was their official assessment of Jesus. Jesus is satanic. But before that happened, there was another shocking incident in the ministry of our Lord So we pick up the story in verse 20, which leads into this statement, this section about the unpardonable sin. Verse 20, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. This is Mark's way of telling us about the immense popularity of Jesus among the common people. His popularity grew to such proportions that the religious leaders of Israel felt like they had to do something to stop 
his growing popularity, that's what prompted them to do what they did in verses 22 through 30. But before that happened, before that happened, Mark inserts this little statement in verse 21 to tell us that the popularity of Jesus was such that his own family, if you can imagine it, felt like they had to protect Jesus from himself. So we read in verse 21, But when his own people, his own family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. This is a shocking statement, beloved. Think about this. The relatives of Jesus... The family members of Jesus were actually trying to restrain him and were saying that he is out of his mind. Can you imagine this? We don't know what relatives these were specifically, but it's possible that even his own brothers were a part of this. The reason I say that is because we are told in John 7, 5, that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. We do know that his brother James eventually became a believer, but that was after the resurrection. And Paul seems to indicate in 1 Corinthians 15, because of the resurrection. So it is possible that even the brothers of Jesus were among these family members who went out to lay hold of him. His own family members attempted to restrain him because they came to the conclusion that he was out of his mind. Try to imagine how this could have made Jesus feel. Don't dismiss his humanity. Think about it from a human perspective. It would have been easy to feel completely discredited if your own family, maybe even your own brothers, don't believe in you. People in society could have easily said, you know, under their breath behind the scenes, well, he must be a phony if his own family doesn't believe in him. They know him best. So he must not be genuine. He's got to be a hypocrite if his own brothers don't believe in him. They lived with him. They know him better than anyone else. I can only imagine how that could have made Jesus feel. His own relatives concluded he was out of his mind. That was the first major rejection on this particular occasion. But there was a second. Not only did the family members of Jesus not believe in him, the religious leaders decided that they were going to disgrace him. They felt like they had to discredit him. The scribes and Pharisees felt like they had to do something to stop this growing popularity of Jesus among the people. So they made a willful decision to make an official declaration, now catch this, that they knew wasn't true. They made a willful decision to make an official declaration that they knew wasn't true. And that leads us to verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. 
Matthew tells us that this group also included the Pharisees. Mark only mentions the scribes. So it was both groups, the scribes and Pharisees. And they often worked together. They were closely related in the sort of spiritual religious hierarchy of Israel. They decided to strike a lethal blow to the popularity of Jesus once and for all. Because Jesus was, was a threat to them and their power and their positions. This was at the heart of the scribes and Pharisees' response. By the way, this wasn't the first time the scribes and Pharisees suggested such a thing about Jesus. Back up with me to Matthew chapter 9 for just a moment. The book just prior to Mark, of course, is Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. <clears throat> We'll pick it up in verse 32. Matthew tells us, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. Well, listen, if the multitudes marveled, the religious leaders figure they've got to do something. So verse 34, but the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. You see, whenever the people began to contemplate Jesus and, and wonder who this man really was, the scribes and Pharisees felt like they had to react and they tried to nip it in the bud immediately so that the reputation of Jesus didn't continue to grow. They were concerned about this groundswell of popular opinion getting out of hand. So they came out strong with their assessment, strong with their declaration. They didn't merely try to plant doubts in the people's minds by saying things like, well, that is pretty interesting. We, we better wait and see some more before we come to any conclusions. We need to ride this out. No, they came out strong. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Beloved, it is difficult for us to appreciate the impact of that kind of pronouncement from the scribes and Pharisees. When we read it here, 21st century, we say, well, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. They were a bunch of phonies and hypocrites, and their pronouncement was biased and based on selfish motives so as to protect their own turf, etc., etc. Yes, we can see that from this vantage point. But it would have been extremely difficult for the people of the day to have that kind of perspective. After all, the scribes and Pharisees were the spiritual leaders. They were the religious elite in the land. They were the leading part of the religious establishment and the religious hierarchy. So their pronouncement carried a lot of weight with the people. As an illustration or an analogy, it would be like the Pope and the bishops and the cardinals of the Catholic Church making a unified declaration about some issue. Do you think it would be easy for Catholic people in society to completely disregard such a declaration? Not on your life. Neither was it easy for the people of that day to dismiss what the scribes and Pharisees had to say about Jesus. They carried a lot of weight, and the scribes knew this was the case. The Pharisees knew that. They knew their influence. They knew their power, and they were determined to use it for their own purposes. So this, 
This incident in Mark 3 is not the first time that they come out with such a statement. They already have in Matthew 9, and now they do so again in our text in Mark chapter 3. Let's go back there to that text in Mark 3. So the scribes and Pharisees repeated their official declaration, their official assessment of Jesus. They said he cast out demons and did his miracles by the power of Satan. They said he was satanically controlled. They said he was empowered by Beelzebul, which was a Philistine god of idolatry, whose name eventually came to be used for Satan. Now let me remind you, beloved, they knew. Please hear this. They knew this wasn't true. But they refused to submit to what they knew was true. This was a deliberate rejection of that which they knew to be of God. They were given the fullest and clearest possible evidence to substantiate the claims of Jesus, but they willfully chose to reject it all. So Jesus showed them the foolishness of their choice and the absurdity of their charge. He says here in Mark chapter 3, verse 23, So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Here Jesus begins to demonstrate the illogical nature of their reasoning and their charge. A kingdom isn't going to fight against itself unless it is intending to bring itself down. The same thing goes for a household, verse 25. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. This is an obvious statement, an axiomatic statement. It's a basic truism. This is something that is self-evident. So Jesus applies this to their charge, their declaration. Verse 26, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. You can see, you can see the contradiction in what the Pharisees and scribes were suggesting by saying that Jesus was casting out demons by Satan or by a demonic spirit. If Jesus had, if Jesus really had been satanic, He wouldn't have been going around Israel casting out demons and sending them away or sending them to the abyss or sending them to the pit. That would make no sense. That would have been self-defeating. That would have been working against himself and his own causes. Think of it this way. Why would Satan... Now think of their, their assessment here, their declaration. Why would Satan enable Jesus... To free a man who was already under his control. That doesn't make sense. So the suggestion of the scribes and Pharisees was preposterous. It made no sense to believe that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. However, just as a little side note, it might be possible to argue that Satan could enable someone to cast out a demon just once or twice, to confuse the issue in people's minds or for some other reason. But this wasn't an isolated instance. 
Jesus was casting out demons regularly everywhere he went. And he was sending them away. He was sending them to the abyss. He was sending them to the pit. He was sending them to this place of incarceration where they would no longer be free to roam about and carry out Satan's plans and programs. So it was obvious that Jesus wasn't in league with Satan or empowered by Satan. He was against Satan and more powerful than Satan. Verse 27, Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus was using an analogy to illustrate the point that he would not have been able to do what he was doing if he had not been more powerful than Satan. Remember, the Pharisees suggested that he was in accord with Satan and he was in league with Satan and empowered by Satan. But Jesus was saying that his actions proved that he was actually against Satan and more powerful than Satan. He was wreaking havoc on Satan's domain. He was casting out demons, literally, uh, by the dozens throughout all Israel, sending demons to the abyss, sending them to the pit. He was wreaking havoc on Satan's domain. He was freeing people from demonic control and sending those demons away, sending them to the abyss. There was no way he would have done that if he had been in consort with Satan, and there's no way he could have done that if he had not been more powerful than Satan. So Jesus has shattered their reasoning with just these little illustrations, this, these little examples. He has shattered their argument. As a side note to this verse before we leave it, it is very common in our day to hear Christians speak to Satan and say something along the lines of this, Satan, we bind you from this place. Satan, we bind you from working in this situation. Satan, we bind you in Jesus' name. That is very common. I'm sure many of you have heard those kinds of statements. Although the motives of people who say such things may be commendable, that practice is completely misguided from a biblical standpoint. Nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament do we see Christians addressing Satan and saying, Satan, we bind you from this place. We bind you from working in this situation. About the closest thing to that recorded in the New Testament is when the seven sons of Sceva in Acts 19 thought they could speak to some demons to implore them or bind them in some way. So they did. They spoke to these demons and tried to implore them or bind them. The text says this is what happened when they did that. Quote, The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Beloved, we don't talk to Satan and try to bind him. When Satan tries to defeat us in some way, we resist him by drawing near to God, according to James 4. We resist him the way Jesus did, by quoting Scripture, by using the Word of God. We don't have any power to bind Satan. Jesus is using an analogy in this verse. 
He's using an illustration in this verse. He's not teaching on spiritual warfare. He's not saying that you and I need to go around trying to bind Satan and bind demons. No. He is using an analogy to illustrate the point that there was no way he would have done what he had done if he had been in consort with Satan. And there's no way he could have done what he had done if he had not been more powerful than Satan. And by the way, the scribes and Pharisees knew this. That's key to this passage. They knew this. They were not confused on this issue. Don't think that way. They, they weren't confused. They knew that they were simply trying to disgrace Jesus and discredit Jesus by making a pronouncement, a bold pronouncement, they knew wasn't true. It was a conscious and deliberate and willful choice on their part, motivated by hatred for Jesus. They had made their choice. They were going to stand against him, disgrace him, discredit him, accuse him of being demon-possessed, satanically controlled, and that decision, says Jesus, was irreversible. And so in verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. This is obviously an eternally serious statement by our Lord. When you read Jesus saying the words, three words, never has forgiveness. I can't think of anything more horrific than that. To be in a position where you are unforgivable would be an incomprehensible nightmare because God is a God of forgiveness. In Psalm 86, 5, it says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In Isaiah 118, God says, Come now, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7, 18 and 19 says, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So when you hear Jesus talk about someone getting to the point where he never has forgiveness, you know that the situation is unique in the extreme. So that raises the question, what is Jesus talking about here? What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, we've already sort of seen it, but let me just explain it specifically. Jesus did his miracles 
in the power of the Holy Spirit, and specifically the miracles of casting out demons. Jesus did that by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to do that, not only to to free people who were held captive, but also to verify and prove that he was God's anointed one. The miracles of Jesus, and specifically his miracles of casting out demons, were the Holy Spirit's testimony, the Holy Spirit's witness to authenticate that Jesus was and is the Messiah. So the miracles of Jesus were not merely his own witness. You could say it this way. The miracles of Jesus were the Holy Spirit's witness. Therefore, whenever someone rejected the claims of Jesus, they were also rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And when the scribes stated with full awareness of its inaccuracy that Jesus did his works by the power of Satan, they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Jesus did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. They said he does it by the power of Satan. That is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They knew that assessment of Jesus wasn't true. But they refused to submit to what they knew was true. This was a deliberate, please hear this, a deliberate rejection of that which they knew to be of God. They were given by the Holy Spirit the fullest and clearest possible evidence to substantiate the claims of Jesus, but they willfully chose to throw it all out and reject it all. Not only did they reject the evidence, they were willing to go further and attribute the evidence from the Holy Spirit to Satan. Thus, they committed the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Please realize, please understand that this sin is more than just the sin of unbelief. Many times I hear Christians say, well, the sin of unbelief is the unpardonable sin. No, the sin of unbelief can be repented of and forgiven. After all, Jesus' own family members didn't believe in him for quite a while. Paul didn't believe in Jesus for quite a while. In fact, most people Don't respond to Jesus the first time they hear about him or learn about him or are made aware of his claims. It would be interesting just to do a little poll here this morning. Say, how many of you responded to the gospel the very first time you ever heard it? It would probably be a very small minority. Most people don't. Most of us stayed in unbelief for quite a while after hearing the gospel. Maybe we heard it, we were exposed to it several times, we didn't believe, we didn't believe, and finally we yielded. Eventually we came to the Lord Jesus and we're forgiven. So it's not correct to say that the unpardonable sin is the sin of unbelief. Now certainly, everyone who dies in unbelief will be damned eternally and will have no chance of forgiveness at that point. But the individuals in this text who committed the unpardonable sin were not dead. They were still alive. Yet Jesus talks about no chance of forgiveness. So the sin of unbelief is not technically the unpardonable sin. Furthermore, because here's another major uh, sort of misunderstanding about this issue, the unpardonable sin is not merely blasphemy. 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13, Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer. 
Paul was a blasphemer, yet he was forgiven. Other blasphemers have been forgiven. Jesus says here, at the end of verse 28, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, they can be forgiven. So it's not accurate to say that the unpardonable sin is the sin of blasphemy. It's not merely unbelief, and it's not merely blasphemy. Here's another false assumption on this topic. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not questioning the validity of tongues and the supposed baptism of the Holy Spirit to enable a person to speak in tongues. Now you think, where did that come from? Well, the reason why I mention this is because it is not uncommon, beloved, not uncommon within the charismatic movement to have people warn you about committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit if you question their view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in tongues. If you say, well, I'm not sure that's of God. Oh, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This is from the Holy Spirit. You're speaking against Him and committing the unpardonable sin. Sadly, sometimes it is attempted intimidation or bullying to keep you from trying to assess the issue from a biblical point of view. So, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not questioning the validity of tongues and the supposed baptism of the Holy Spirit to enable a person to speak in tongues. So what is it? Here's the condensed statement. The unpardonable sin was seeing the miracles of Jesus firsthand, knowing the truthfulness of his messianic claims and claims of deity, yet making a willful choice to reject him and attributing his Holy Spirit-empowered works to Satan. That's why Mark adds verse 30. He says, Jesus spoke this because they said he has an unclean spirit. That was the unpardonable sin. The scribes and Pharisees knew Jesus did not have an unclean spirit. They knew he did not have a demon. They knew he was doing his miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet they were willing to say repeatedly that his Holy Spirit-empowered miracles came from the power of Satan. His Holy Spirit-empowered miracles came from a demon. That is the unpardonable sin. You see, people can be wrong in their assessment of Jesus. People can be viewing their views, people can be wrong in their views of Jesus and state their wrong views about him. They can say, well, we, I think Jesus was just a rabbi or a good moral teacher or whatever. And all that can be forgiven if they ever come to the realization that they're wrong and are willing to repent of their views to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as he really is. All that can be forgiven. But the scribes and Pharisees took all that the Holy Spirit had given in the form of Jesus' miracles to prove the claims of the Lord Jesus, and they knowingly, willfully rejected it all and asserted for their own purposes that Jesus was satanic. That was the unpardonable sin. That's why I said back at the beginning of this message that there's a sense in which the unpardonable sin cannot be committed today. What do I mean by that? Well, 
for the unpardonable sin to be committed today, you have to have Jesus bodily present on earth, doing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit to prove his messianic claims, to prove his deity. And you have to have people seeing that over a period of time, knowing it's true, but wanting to discredit him and disgrace him, and thus coming out with a pronouncement, he is from Satan. You need all of those variables together, technically speaking, to commit the unpardonable sin. However, let me hasten to add this. Although the unpardonable sin cannot be committed today, since Jesus is not present on the earth and performing his miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit as proof of his claims, there is a danger spoken of in Scripture of hardening your heart until you reach the point of no return. Let me say that again. Although the unpardonable sin cannot be committed today, technically speaking, since Jesus is not present here on the earth, performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit as proof of his claims, there is clearly in Scripture the warning about the danger of hardening your heart until you reach the point of no return. It's not so much that you get to the point where you're unforgivable. It's where you get to the point where you are unresponsive. You will never respond. There are several passages of Scripture that warn about hardening your heart to the point that it is impenetrable. For example, three times within five verses in Romans 1, it says, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over. In other words, God finally came to the point of saying, sit, go. You want to run from me? Go. We're done. Go. 1 Timothy 4.2 speaks of those who have a seared conscience. The conscience is so seared, it can't even respond anymore. Ephesians 4.19 speaks of those who have lost all sensitivity and have become calloused and are, here's the exact direct statement, and are past feeling. No spiritual responsiveness whatsoever. That is a tragic place to end up. If you reject the Lord and reject His Word and continue to reject His call on your heart, there will come a time when He will take hands off and say, okay, you don't want the truth? Go your own way. You don't want me? Go your own way. So I warn you. I warn you not to say, oh, it's, it's good to hear that the unpardonable sin can't be committed today, you know, technically speaking, and so I, it's okay. Then I'm going to just keep, keep doing my own thing and continue going down my own path. I warn you not to resist the Lord's call on your heart and life. If you're here today without Christ and you have any sensitivity whatsoever to the Holy Spirit's conviction, I urge you to repent of your sin, let go of whatever is holding you back, and give your life to Jesus Christ. Because there can come a time when it's too late, not on God's end, but on your end. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing this morning, with the few minutes that remain in our time together, I want to strongly encourage you to think about, especially just the way we closed the message 
by talking about the possibility of a heart, your heart, becoming so hard that it's just impenetrable. You just have no, no interest, no feeling, no sensitivity whatsoever to the Holy Spirit's conviction. It's very possible that there's someone or several someones like that here today. You've sort of been around the truth. You've been around the church. and you, you Maybe on a head knowledge level, you know a lot, but you've never really surrendered to Christ. And you think, well, I've got time. I want to do what I want to do now. But, you know, eventually, someday, maybe I'll take this stuff seriously. I warn you. I, I, I can't say if you reject today, that's it. I, I don't know your heart. I don't know when it reaches the point of no return, but the Lord does. And it's a dangerous thing to just keep saying, no, no, Lord, later, later I'll submit to you. Later I'll surrender to you. It's a very, very dangerous game to play. So again, I say, if you're here today without Christ, if you're not surrendered to him, and you have any sensitivity at all to the Spirit's conviction in your heart and life, don't push that away. Don't ignore that. Surrender your life to Christ this day, this moment, before it's too late. In the quietness of your own heart, right where you are seated, just tell the Lord Jesus, I, 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 want, to, I want to take you as my Lord and Savior. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Forgive my sin. Cleanse me. Change me. I want to belong to you. Father, as we look back at this passage of Scripture and think about the seriousness of these things, it's, it's re really rather shocking to think that Jesus' own family, maybe his own brothers, would come to the conclusion he's out of his mind because of what he was claiming and what he was doing. And then to see the hardness of hearts in the scribes and Pharisees as they knowingly, willfully, for their own purposes, made an official declaration that Jesus was satanic just so that they could protect their own turf, their own positions, and stem the tide of Jesus' popularity. It's, it's in one sense, unthinkable, but we're reminded of the, the wickedness of our own hearts and the hardness of our own hearts. And so help us to take the truth to which we've been exposed this morning and grapple with it in our own lives and personally in our in our own hearts. And in closing, Father, we want to pray for anyone here among us who, who knows the truth but has been unwilling to yield to it, who has pushed you away, who has kept, tried to keep you at arm's distance and just do his own thing or do her own thing and thinking that I have time, maybe later. Father, may your Holy Spirit once again bring conviction. And may he or she not resist any longer. May they not resist any longer. But yield to the Lord Jesus this day. And come to know him and his salvation and his forgiveness. We pray these things in his precious and exalted name. Amen.